0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com/rightbook. We are living in stressful times and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best for you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/writebook today and get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel writebook This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. What is the distinction between neurology and psychiatry? Why does a biological breakthrough move an illness out of psychiatry and into the rest of medicine? And most significantly, how do you diagnose mental illness? Many of these questions were explored in a study done in the early 70s entitled On Being Sane in Insane Places. This study shaped psychiatry for decades. But was the study itself fabricated? And if so, As Chief Bromden says in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is it the truth even if it didn't happen? The best-selling author of Brain on Fire, Susanna Cahalan, applies her journalistic and investigative chops and her own hellish journey into diagnostic failure to answer these questions in her new stunning book, The Great Pretender. Susanna, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, it is such a pleasure, and what an intro! I have to say,
1: <laughs> I love that you picked out the Bromden quote. I thought that that was just so perfect, and thank I you for highlighting. It. that. I loved
0: it. Um, I, I stole it from your book. Um, so, you know, we have a you, you have a lot in the book, and I'm you know I've been thinking about how to start the conversation. So, one of the things that was powerful in the book is where you say there are not, as of this writing, any consistent objective measures that can render a definitive psychiatric diagnosis. So the obvious question is, how can that be when so many people are diagnosed and treated I mean, that is a question that really fueled me. And I think
1: that in that sentence, which is, you know, in the book, is the the key part of that sentence is objective. Right. You know, there are tons of tests, you know, and clinical assessments that, that are used to render psychiatric diagnoses. But there's not a blood test, a spinal, you know, fluid examination or a CT scan or an MRI that can tell you, oh, this person has schizophrenia or this person is suffering from bipolar disorder. And, you know, I might have known that vaguely, but I definitely kind of dove into that with this book and and kind of based off my own personal experiences with being misdiagnosed.
0: Yeah, and we're going to come back to what people, what doctors do know. But let's go back to what got you interested. And for our listeners that might not have read Brain on Fire, they have to read both books. They have to read Brain on Fire and Great Pretender. (laughs) Let's go back to Brain on Fire and give us a little summary of what happened to you that got you on this path, which has become career-defining.
1: Yeah, I mean— Or life-defining. Life, absolutely. Both. Both. (laughs) Everything-defining. I mean, you know, it's this book, The Great Pretender, is very much born um, and has a conversation with with Brain on Fire. Mm -hmm. And so Brain on Fire really chronicled my experience with misdiagnosis in 2009 at the age of 24 when I started to experience psychosis, and I had hallucinations, I was violent, Uh, you know, I was, um, you know, my mood was all over the place, Um, I was catatonic, and doctors had various rule-out diagnoses at various points. So at one point, it was bipolar disorder that was being kind of thrown around, and then as my psychosis intensified, and I was in the hospital for a month, that diagnosis became schizophrenia, or schizoaffective disorder, actually, in particular. And um, it was only after um, a spinal fluid you know a, a lumbar puncture is essentially a uh, spinal tap that i was diagnosed with a newly discovered autoimmune disease called anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis mm. um and, and and in essence you know i think it was that book um and my experience in it kind of one of the one of the kind of salient questions there was what is a mental illness if i could have so so easily been misdiagnosed with one um and you know, what separated my experience with an autoimmune disease that attacked my brain from those who experience, you know, schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia
0: or other serious mental illnesses? And, you know, in this book, you talk about uh, a letter that you got from a parent whose child, although it must have been an adult yes. child, I think— yeah that parent was convinced that maybe their child also had an autoimmune, but it was too late for that? No, you know, it's actually, it, with that email,
1: um, what was interesting about that was that his son, he was had a 30-something-year-old son who had a lifelong struggle with serious mental illness, I think ultimately was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but received various diagnoses um, throughout his whole life. And at one point, um, he heard me, he he, he very much, rela- he, he kind of he kind of presented my story as a hopeful one. You know, mm-hmm. maybe we could find, like Susanna found an answer, maybe we can find one for my right. son. And he heard me talk, actually. Oh, that actually, just breaks your heart know, to even—
0: for me to even hear you yes. repeat it.
1: Yeah, and so I was I did a I was an, on on tour for my book and I um I did some kind of event that was recorded and he he watched me and you know he, again he was kind of coming to it as a fan and he heard me present this kind of dichotomy saying I did not have a psychiatric condition, I had a neurological one. Mine was organic in my brain. It wasn't psychiatric kind mm-hmm. of in the mind. And this was the same kind of unfair dichotomy that doctors had presented to his son, basically saying, you take these medications, this is the only option you have for your son. Um, And he felt that that was unfair. And he really kind of felt um, a a little bit, a bit kind of uh, cast aside by by my book and by my message. And I realized that actually part of Brain on Fire and this kind of push to separate myself in a way from from Mm. psychiatric diagnoses, because because it was a scary you know scary idea. Basically, you know throughout the whole time I hadn't
0: thought about that. Yeah, because because you as collateral damage. To your talking about your shift into the medical world and away from the psychiatric world, somebody stuck in the psychiatric world might feel condemned. Absolutely.
1: Perfectly put. Mm. And um, I didn't realize at the time, I I felt I had to separate myself because there is a real tremendous stigma. And I remember when I was first diagnosed, before I'd written the book, I was very shameful about what happened to me. I didn't understand all I really knew is that I had psychosis, and it was really frightening. And as I started to write the book, I became very open about what happened to me in a way to separate myself from the psychiatric label of saying, it wasn't psychiatric, it was an autoimmune, and I can tell you all the fancy terminology and the jargon. And now, as I spent six years talking about the history of psychiatry, I actually have a different perspective on it. I actually feel that I had a psychiatric condition. I was just born during a time when they understand the origins of that psychiatric condition. And so I didn't realize that that brain on fire may have actually been contributing to a degree to the stigmatization of of serious mental illness. But
0: Susanna, as I'm listening to you, it makes me think about something a little bit differently, and let's take it in two parts. One is what it obviously brings to mind. In your uh, statement just now. You taught, You said born at this time. Yeah. So, for instance, you had a story um, about a man, Charles Whitman, who was yeah. a serial murderer, and he asked to have an autopsy done. And it turns out he had glioblastoma? Yeah, this is a fascinating story.
1: And we don't know. I mean, we can't say for sure. But this is the Austin shooter, um, the tower shooter right. uh, in the 60s. And it was one of the kind of first school shootings. And what they found when he, after he had committed these horrific acts um, of, of murder, of outright murder— They had found a suicide note in which he said something like, something's not right with me. I want an autopsy done after my death. And they did an autopsy and found... Some kind of tumor, tumor, malignant tumor, in his brain. You know, does that mean that did the tumor cause his violent behavior, or was he violent and it just had a tumor? I mean, you know, we can't we can't know that. But those are the questions that I think, you know, really underlie a lot of these issues. You know,
0: yeah, and so so if, so to go back to this sort of fork in the road. So one fork seems to me that could or should a book like Brain on Fire motivate the medical industry to think more broadly when presented with indicia of mental illness, yes. right? Because we don't know the answer right. to what's dry- – because we don't have other scientific breakthroughs, right? So that's, that's part of your point. Right. But talk a little bit about the second point, which is – What is it that can be done so that psychiatric symptoms have a broader measure of neurological or medical sourcing? Is that even possible? I mean, isn't that the goal? I
1: think that if you talk to research psychiatrists, that's really the goal. I mean, I think in the, while we're searching for these answers, which a lot of them are very impossible answers, like the Charles Whitman question that you yeah. just asked. While we're doing that, I feel that the idea of bringing in a broad consortium of people dealing with mental health issues, not just kind of, you know— pushing them off to the side in kind of a, you know, because, you know, in a way you feel like you're siphoned off from the rest of medicine once you've been given a psychiatric label. I think that's a huge mistake. And I think in terms of my care, from a personal perspective, there was a multidisciplinary approach to my care. And I and you were lucky. I was outrageously lucky. Like, why'd they even do a spinal tap? I mean, you know, there are various reasons. I mean, one of them was there were seizures. They were never captured. So there's, you know, they were never captured ictally. Um, but there were seizures. There were other neurological well, you know, I would do something like smack my lips, which is very kind of common for for catatonia and can actually be a side a side effect of some psychiatric drugs. So uh-huh. there was kind of—but there were some indications that there was a neurological event, though it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that is. Some people just said, you know, it didn't feel right. And there also—it was the sudden onset of the symptoms, I feel like. With no history. Right.
0: Although— Oh, so you could Doesn't, reframe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could reframe anyone's history. I mean, you know, at at some point, I'm, my mom and my brother, I would later learn when I was, inter, you know, interviewing them, they kind of were saying, "Well, could she have bipolar?" I mean, she has a lot of energy and she's been depressed. You know, everyone you can kind of peer back into everyone's history and fit in a narrative that makes sense, and and that kind of goes to the David Rosenhan story. I feel.
0: Yeah, and l- let's go to that because even uh, at the start of the study or the precursor of the study at Swarthmore, and I want to go to that, but let's start with what was the study? that was published in the early 70s. So uh, the study was called On Being Sane
1: in Insane Places, and it was published in Science in 1973. And it was kind of a daring experiment where eight people, uh, kind of so-called normal healthy volunteers, went undercover in psychiatric hospitals across the country to kind of test the nature of diagnosis and to report back about their experiences there. A kind of key part of the study was that each person who has again no history of psychiatric issues presents to an intake office with these the only symptoms i hear a voice that says thud i hear a voice that says empty and just based on that each of the eight were diagnosed with serious mental illness the most common diagnosis was schizophrenia
0: so that's pretty scary and in early in the book um you have the example that david rosenhan did a preliminary thing before the big study was done and checked himself in or presented the way you're talking about mm-hmm. to a hospital in philadelphia in, outside pennsylvania, the, yeah, in pennsylvania outside yeah. outside mm-hmm. philadelphia and the way you describe the Intake and the observation of Doctor Bartlett yes. early on in that was palpable. Oh. It was just you—you pal- you could feel exactly how frightening that would be. So relate that incident uh, that that uh, David had when he voluntarily went to this hospital. It was Haverford, Haverford, yeah, yeah. Um, ha- Haverford Hospital. You know it. David Rosenhan is the
1: study, the author's study. And he, it was kind of like a teaching exercise. It started, his students kind of wanted more. He taught at Swarthmore. He taught at Swarthmore. He was teaching an abnormal psychology seminar. The students came up to him and said, we want like hands-on experience. And so he said, check yourself into a psychiatric hospital. He actually said, check yourself into a mental hospital and become a patient. And uh, when he tried to reach out to their parents and get permission, each one of them denied permission. And it became very clear, no one wants to put their children in a psychiatric hospital because these are not healing places. These are scary, frightening places, which was understandable because at the time, psychiatric hospitals were having a lot of bad press
0: and for very good reason. Yeah. This is the error of Willowbrook, which oh, is the absolutely. one that it became infamous one floor of
1: the cuckoo's nest was a huge book at the time i mean you had uh the snake pit you had a lot of media that was surrounding kind of the horrors of your local psychiatric mm-hmm. hospital so david rosenhan he was he was the professor and he decided you know what i'm gonna go first so he checked himself in to haverford state hospital and spent nine days there and um I think it was an extremely profound experience for him. And I know this because I have tracked down his unpublished book and his diary. Mm. So I get a very kind of visceral, and thank you for saying that you could kind of feel the palpability there because, you know, he's not around to interview because he passed away in 2012. So recreating that um, through his writing, I really wanted to come alive. And he's a beautiful writer, so it was helpful. Um, But, you know, from the moment he became a patient uh, you know, all of his agency and kind of self worth evaporated. A nurse made him strip with a door wide open. He realized there were no handles on the bathroom doors. Yeah. You know, a, a woman, a nurse, at one point just adjusted her bra in full sight of the patients, not to be kind of seductive, but to actually because they weren't they were not less than people. Yeah. And he felt this kind of he described it as nether people.
0: Um, and and they lose. I mean, you use the word agency, yeah. so th- and and that feels right, but. They can't make calls. Absolutely. They're not allowed to have their clothes. They're the constraint that they're in was frightening, and and I mean, we'll come to what it's like now because this was fifty six years ago, or, or even longer, almost sixty years ago that he did the Swarthmore.
1: It was sixty nine. I'm yeah, bad at
0: math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever that is. Yeah, fifty years ago. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I majored in math. Oh, there so. we go. You can handle that. <laughs> yeah, I can handle that number. Yes. Um, so, so he comes out of that. He finally gets out. But even that looked a little. His wife Molly was very much. Engaged and showing up, so that helped, right? Yeah. So to
1: be to to gain admittance to the hospital, he actually had to be committed. Which, as you point out, like, effectively you lose a lot of your rights. So this wasn't theoretical. Being another person, I mean, you really
0: sign away your your rights when you but become. But what a, was interesting is when he and Molly went to Haverford to the hospital, yes. they didn't think that they had to go to the ra- route of being committed as opposed to voluntary and additionally Molly was reluctant to sign that he could discretionarily by the hospital get electric shock yeah. treatment and David convinced her to sign it. Yes. Is that still the case in hospitals? No, that would not be the case. So
1: there are there is involuntary commitment at this but this idea of voluntary commitment was very much of the time but I mean David really had to convince his wife. I mean, it took a lot of cajoling to get his wife to Understandably. sign. Understandably, of course, and it was just all for a teaching exercise. Again, I mean, it's amazing. It's one of the reasons why I wish. He, I mean, I really wish I could have met him. And there were so many yeah. questions I could ask him. And that, and one of them was, at that point, why
0: didn't you just turn on your heels and walk away? And he didn't. Yeah. So, what drove him to the next step? You know.
1: I I, another thing I grapple with, and I and I interviewed his son and and found some insight there. His uh, David's brother suffered from serious mental illness, Um, and I think he was you know he grew up around it. I think he was consumed by a lot of these similar questions that you raised at the beginning um, of this talk and. You know, I always think, like, I I never can find the exact reason why, but I think it was a kind of curiosity, a personal investment, you know, and I think it was also, I've gotten this far, I'm going to move on. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see this through. Mm. I think that was part
0: of his first. So he goes to Stanford.
1: Yeah. So he's recruited to Stanford based on the kind of rumblings about this study because people- Because it's big news. It's big news. It's big news. And
0: he started to recruit other pseudo patients according to- his book. So you came across this study as a result of you studying the history of psychiatry. Well, you know, I came
1: across this study, you know, during this fraught time when I got that email from the the father and his son. And also at that, around that same time, I, I really kind of made it a kind of missionary, my missionary mission to mm-hmm. get the word out about autoimmune encephalitis. And during one of my events or not even events, one of I grand rounds, you know, medical kind of conferences, I went to a psychiatric hospital and there after I told my story, doctors came up to us and said, you know, there's someone who's been in and out of this hospital for a few years that sounds a lot like you. And we want to test her, and you know that was compelling. I remember walking around and thinking, which of these people have what I have, you know, yeah. or maybe one of these people, were misdiagnosed like I was. And uh, two weeks later, I heard that she was misdiagnosed, and she was Holy had cow. autoimmune encephalitis. And how long had she been hospitalized? A few years, on and off and unfortunately her doctor and this is a quote she said he said that she would not fully recover because of the damage done to her brain i was misdiagnosed for a month you know she was at least for a few years misdiagnosed and they said that she would not she would become she would not recover fully and she would live her life as a permanent child which was their quote and it was just heartbreaking and honestly rage inducing actually yeah. i was angry you know and i and that happened and then when i was on book tour uh, for the paperback i um went I did a presentation and there was a neuroscientist and a researcher in the audience who I had you know talked to before we went out to dinner and they brought up um we were kind of talking about I talked about this woman who I call kind of called my mirror image she's kind of yeah And you refer to her. Yeah, as my mirror image, because she's kind of the very easily could have been me, you know. So I told them about that story. And at one point, um, Deborah Levy, who was in the um, meeting who studies schizophrenia, said to me, you're a a pseudo patient. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And she said, you should really look up this study on being sane in insane places. And it was amazing. I, I went, I remember going back to my hotel room and and reading it and and, and relating so deeply with what he had written. And I thought, there's a story here.
0: This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash rightbook. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/writebook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.com/writebook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening, and now back to Just the Right Book. So let's start with what did the study prove?
1: I mean, you know, I think the study showed, you know, the public that psychiatry did not know how to, quote, you know, differentiate sanity from insanity. He opens with this amazing salvo. It's, it's if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? Mm. And he ultimately concludes that we don't know. To how to tell the difference between them and so that was a real kind of sock in the eye to psychiatry at that time because they were having what's what, were, what are called now the worry years they were not having a good time in the media and they had had other studies that showed that they were unreliable they didn't they didn't agree on psych, on, on diagnosis and the whole diagnostic system was problem was problematic so this study kind of proved that to the public and I think I think in terms of on a deeper level which what really appealed to me was that the study showed that physicians fall prey to what we all do is that mm-hmm. we are see the world by how we are what are we are primed to see. So this was a psychiatric hospital you had People in a psychiatric hospital, of course, they're "quote unquote" crazy, right? Yeah. And so every, you know, these behaviors that these pseudo patients, as they're called, you know, exhibited during that time, like one person was, you know, each person wrote wrote about what was going on in the ward. So they would sit there writing in their journals. And at least on one occasion, a nurse had written in her files: "Patient engages in writing behavior." Which showed this is a patho- that pathology. That cracked
0: me up. I know. So so now you're in a psychiatric institution. So the act of journaling yes. or writing yes. becomes evidence of a psychiatric problem. Yes. So everything you do within the
1: hospital is further proof of your insanity. And that was fascinating to me because I had experienced that uh, as well. When in my brief foray into being misdiagnosed, you know, at one point in the hospital, a psychiatrist who, by the way, is a very close friend of mine now, but she came and um, and she examined me, and I had the medical records, and in the examination when bipolar was the rule out diagnosis, she noted that I had a see-through shirt, which it wasn't really see-through, it was a white shirt, and leggings, which she described as tight leggings, which to her was sign of a kind of hypersexuality, a kind of, you know, revealing nature which can can be associated with with bipolar disorder
0: um, with a manic episode.
1: So uh, that was just how I dressed. That was not you know, that was not hypersexuality or anything. um, So
0: everything starts going through a different lens. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I was reminded of reading it that in 1973, which feels very contemporary to me, I was already married, right? Um homosexuality was a mental disorder that there were still vestiges of the 19th century idea that hysteria in women was not anxiety but a form of uh, schizophrenia or some psychotic disorder. So it wasn't that far removed from what feels ancient, Yes. right? And so I think it's important as we talk about it to just realize how unevolved psychiatry still was. And one of the stories that you uh, talk about, which I think is worth sharing— Because it seems like it's, oh, in another planet, but in fact, not that far from the study. Tell us the story of Nellie Bly. Oh, well, Nellie Bly is my
1: favorite. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) Right? She's just so
0: great. Yeah.
1: But, you know, Nellie Bly, that was, you know, that was the 19th century. Um, At that point, there was kind of a view of madness, as it was termed, as a kind of one-size-fits-all. You know, there was there, there weren't really diagnoses within that. If you were crazy, you were crazy and you'd mm-hmm. end up in an asylum. And at that point, there was, um, you know, uh, Blackwell's Island, uh, which was, you know, an, an island off of Manhattan where basically they'd send you if you were – if they deemed you outside the kind of norm. Um, and Nellie Bly was commissioned by the New York World to go – She was a journalist. A journalist just starting out in her right. early 20s. And I think they kind of thought <laughs> – You know, this is a really difficult one. Let's throw, like, the newbie female reporter at it, you know. Uh, She's dispensable. So they sent her out, and she spent, I think, 11 days on this notorious asylum where people were killed. You know, it was so abusive that people were killed. And inhumane,
0: sanitary conditions. One
1: of the things that really—and I actually read some of this in um, a wonderful book. Oh, now I'm—sorry, now I'm blanking on the book's name. They do, it's a, it's a, it's all about Nelly. Uh, it's about the island. I can't remember. We'll anyway, remember. It yeah, in a I remember it later. Oh, but I I,
0: I kind of remember the book. Yeah, it was a wonderful
1: book. But there were there are details um, that I read in in other sources about what she would have faced then. And she almost has too much decorum to go into some of the really bad stuff. For example, she talks about kind of being thrown into a washbasin that's that's just filled with disgusting things. And yeah. some of those disgusting things are. Dead vermin, yeah, you know, and people have open syphilitic sores because at that point, people who had syphilis were sent to islands right. like that. People bathing in the same the bathwater wasn't changed, so you're bathing in the same bathwater as I'm with open syphilitic sores, and I mean, it's really just dis- it's disturbing what she was what she describes. But in that.
0: Susanna, the thing that was striking to me now that is, you know, extreme. Yes, of course. But the distance between that. And um, psychiatric institutions in the 60s maybe didn't have the degree of unsanitary conditions or the degree of inhumane treatments, Mm. but there was plenty. No, I mean, there were...
1: Horror stories told around that time that were you know a hundred years later. Bridgewater is one one such example, and there were you know there was uh, Mizell wrote a a, a, a series of exposes about what was going on in psychiatric hospitals and people you know sitting in their own filth you know f- sores on their yeah, bodies. I mean, I it's remember not, that. Yeah, it's not that dissimilar. I mean, Willowbrook was. Uh, I mean the footage on there. I mean, it was just as bad. And, you know, what's even kind of more terrible about that is the more research I did to into how psychiatry is today, you learn that a lot of people with the most serious forms of psychiatric illness end up in prisons and jails and are in horrendous conditions yeah. today. So that was really terrifying to me.
0: So I, I want to come back to the study. And then I want to come back to psychiatric institutions. So what was the impact of the study being published? You know, the, the impact was kind of—it kind of snakes its way through so much of, of of
1: psychiatric history, of modern psychiatric history. So at the very kind of base minimum is that the, that study— was published in Science, which has a huge footprint, not only academically but um, with the, with for the lay public. So when that su- that that study was published, almost every newspaper across the country covered it, and they covered it with op eds, and they maybe put their own little spin on it, and they had these great some had kind of great puns that they added to their headlines. But the essentially it was it was kind of the same um, refrain: is that psych- psychiatrists don't know what the hell they're doing basically. And psychiatrists fought back and tried to make various points, which were valid in a lot of, a lot of, you know, for example, one, who, which one, one of my favorite responses was that, well, go to emergency room and start, you know, and swallow blood and throw it up and see if they admit you. It's a valid criticism, mm-hmm. but, you know, the average, pe- the average stay was nine days and the one person, according to his uh, study, stayed for 52 days. So I don't think they'd keep you in a hospital for 52 days, if you would swallow blood and right. you know, they would discover it eventually. But anyway, there were valid criticisms on both sides. But um, what happened was it just kind of confirmed what the study, what the lay public already kind of believed, which was psychiatry had a lot of power and not a lot of legitimacy. And an extension of that were their hospitals. So at that point, you know, the ball was already in motion to closing a lot of psychiatric hospitals. Reagan had been, you know, he was in California as a governor and he had closed a good deal of them. Across the country, psychiatric hospitals were closing. This just kind of further proved that, that we should, these are not benign institutions. They're not healing institutions. Let's close them down. And it also had a huge effect on um, a new diagnostic system, which is called,
0: the D- DSM DSM
1: diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders, which is still used today. It's the Bible basically, of psychiatry. And um, I was able to talk to a few people who were the architects of the third edition of That's that. That's 1981. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. which had a huge effect on the field and um, was in a process of kind of, of reacting to st- studies like David Rosenhan's and offering kind of a scientific, medically valid um, uh, attempt to wrap your mind around these psychiatric conditions. And, and did
0: it accomplish that? Does the DSM... Actually, did it um, add to the diagnostic tools that led to a diagnosis
1: or does it? I mean, I think I've, you know, I think the DSM is very flawed. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who um, a lot of psychiatrists would agree with me. I think that there are hard lines where there should be soft edges. I believe that they, in in the process of trying to make things scientifically valid, they lost that kind of nebulous unknown, which is so important in psychiatry and in medicine to acknowledge things that we do not know. And, you know, as more and more research about the brain is emerging now, we're realizing that these hard line differences between things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and anxiety disorder, et cetera, they're not such kind of black lines between them that there's a real continuum. And um, though there have been edits that have, uh, you know, adapted the continuum model into these questions and into these ideas, you know, the fact of I I believe that one day we will look at the DSM as very outmoded. Yeah. I, I do believe that.
0: You know, it does remind me a little bit. There's a a book that came out a bunch of years ago called Letters of Note, and one of the letters was um, the admission paper from a West Virginian psychiatric facility. And it listed all the reasons that you would be labeled insane, and they included stealing horses or, you know, things that in no way were psychiatric. And as I was reading your book, I thought, I wonder if in our lifetime, or maybe your lifetime, not mine, somebody will look at the DSM and say, whoa, I can't believe we thought that. Here's the deal. We hope that
1: right yeah cuz medical progress is we want to look back in 50 years and say look how prehistoric we were look how look look at this barbaric way we were treating people we want to see that in psychiatry we want to see that in oncology we want to see that in every area of medicine we yeah. really want to move forward so
0: susanna one of the things that you become or that one becomes very aware of reading the book is the link between big pharma and psychiatry And, you know, you admit that there are a number of uh, pharmaceutical solutions to diseases, but you also suggest that some of these pharmaceutical solutions are eclipsing evidence that other softer, what we might call wellness theories, have been proven to solve some of these problems. So talk Talk to us about that. You know, I think
1: this comes down again to this idea of hard lines, right, and making things medical or biological. And in doing that, we start to drop off the softer side of medicine, which is care. You know, it's actually person-to-person contact. It's listening. It's a doctor coming in and making eye contact and touching you. Those things are healing and important to the healing process, especially in psychiatry, but in medicine in general. And I do believe that, um, you know, the the pharmaceutical kind of story that we have these chemicals in our brain and and this chemical comes in and the dopamine, this, and we use these terms— and I think it makes it makes us think that it's more solid than it is. And the fact is, we still don't know why mm-hmm. these drugs work and why this drug works for this person and doesn't work for that. And I think that that pharmaceutical story did kind of set us back in focusing Because it looked on like it. the answer. I mean, it's, wouldn't it be so great if, if we could just were. figure it all out with just a pill?
0: So, Susanna, where do you see work being done in the area of psychiatry that's Encouraging to you,
1: you know. I see a lot of it, I, you know, and that's something that I hope. And I and I wonder if if this if this was imparted to you. I have. I'm optimistic about the future. And mm-hmm. what happened to me was miraculous. Yeah, you know. And I and how could I not be optimistic? However, in the process of reporting this book out and living with it for six years, I, I'm also skeptical. So I had this kind of skeptical optimism. Yeah. But what I'm excited about, I mean, at the research side, it is exciting you know if i when i talk to young research you know psychiatrists neurologists or the bridging of the two which the is very common which right. is very common now um they are so excited i I've, I've heard a uh, multiple times and i and i write this in the book that they liken where we are now to the discovery of the microscope times 3 that we are look we're going to be able to look at the brain in deeper more nuanced ways mm. than ever before and that hopefully will will translate to breakthroughs not necessarily cuz we've had We have had, you know, advances in imaging, you know, since 1973, and it hasn't yielded, you know, the insights that we so wanted. But it is exciting. You can't help but talk to that community and be excited.
0: Well, the other thing it made me think about. So one of the unintended consequences, we'll say, of the 73 study is that most hospitals were shut down, and as you say, we now have data about people with mental illness who maybe should be hospitalized are either homeless or um, in prisons, and the way the medical care payment system works, they can't access the kind of... So does it make you think that there's a kind of institution or asylum that ought to be reinvented, but with a different set of parameters or operational uh, protocols. You know, it's such a dangerous dis- discussion right? because you it's think, oh gosh, soap. you think
1: about Nellie Bly you think about all these horror. I mean, warehousing of seriously mentally Ill- is-, is a scourge on our past. Yeah. And it's one that we need, you know, this is one of the functions of this book is to be aware of our history so that we don't repeat it again. However, I do believe that there, there, we have to provide care. And care involves, you know, giving someone a bed to sleep in and, and food to eat and therapy. And someone who who cares about them. I mean, literally the word care. And we don't have that in wide swaths of this country. And I've been on the ground. I've seen a lot of psychiatric hospitals. I've seen some great ones. There are great ones. And I've seen some terrible ones. I mean, the terrible ones outweigh the the great ones, you know, in my personal experience. And are the
0: great ones newer ones or are they headed by people that are single-handedly providing the kind of leadership for change?
1: You know, that's really interesting that, yes. Um, and I think it's a priority, you know, you have to prioritize mental health. Yeah. It's not just going to be a like kind of like tack it on to the system because it's not it's not, a, it's not a money generator. You have to make it a focus. And I well, saw Well, it's this. not a
0: money, you know, yeah. here's the thing that I always think is a problem. I just want to see where we are for time. Yeah. Um, that money-making. Yeah. What we forget to analyze, this is true in lots of fields. We forget to think of the benefit of preventive work, right? So we can say it's not money making, except if you if you think about a dollar in mental health is saving eight dollars in prison costs, mental health issues, homeless issues, that that's pretty damn. Uh, that's a pretty good return on you are, your money. <laughs> you're preaching to the
1: choir about that. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, at the, if you do in terms of the cost it is to to put someone through the criminal justice system, and also the loss of our GDP in terms of people who are not able to work, yeah, because they're not getting the proper care and quick enough. You're talking billions of dollars lost, and it's and you know it, and you're right. Prevention is key here, you know, and and I think that and and intervention at early stages I think is key, but. Um, That's all to say that, you know, so much of the system is broken, and there are kind of slivers that I've seen of glimmers of of bright lights. And one of them actually happens to be in South Dakota. I went to South Dakota, um, and I I toured a facility there. um, And I have to tell you that the psychiatric—they had three units. One was more acute. One was in in between a kind of step down, and one was longer term. And— they were beautiful facilities. I mean, just on the mm. just aesthetic value, you walked in, there are windows everywhere. And I thought I just kind of contrasted that with David Rosenhan and his experience with the psychiatric hospital, like bars on windows, you know, just very depressing atmosphere. It was the opposite. And I noticed that the, the you know, the nurses, the attendants, the whole, the staff, they weren't glassed in, by by a cage which a lot mm. of places a lot of psychiatric hospitals have a literal nurses cage this place totally open part of the ward and it just felt different and i learned that it wasn't so just the cause and effect is uh, yeah. hard to environment miss environment has hard an not effect to miss. yeah environment has an effect on your psychiatric health absolutely yeah and they also you know they have various you know methods of reaching people they have you know a triage, a mobile triage unit that can go to the you in the community which is very very important wow. they also they also interface directly with the with police officers so that people who have serious mental illness are brought to the hospital not to jail so they're not even they don't even enter the jail mm. system it was a wonderful trip to, to see this. So it, it's, it's possible, I think. And, and it might not be perfect. And it might not be a perfect example, but it, it looked a lot, a lot better than other places that I'd seen.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to leave our listeners with a misunderstanding of what we talked about in the beginning. Yes. The book does not suggest that these psychiatric ailments um, don't deserve the medical uh, the medical institution right. to take them seriously and help treat people with these um, conditions with everything that they've got right now. Right. You're, I, I think the it's inverse, fair uh, yeah. Yeah, that the point is that there's progress that could be made so that diagnosis and treatment is more refined.
1: And I also think that, you know, part of that... Is that a fair statement? Oh, oh absolutely. And I think the part of the progress comes from accepting that we don't know so much because, yeah. you
0: know... You talk about just taking away the arrogance. And the hubris, yes, yeah. exactly. Saying, I got this. Yeah,
1: oh, this is what exactly you have. Well, we don't... These are these are gray areas. And, you know, mm. part of that... You know, and I, I saw this secondhand repeatedly through people who had contacted me who had been misdiagnosed, when they were diagnosed with a serious mental illness, they were told things like, you'll never work. How is that fair?
0: You know, and, and the, yeah, you know, that's the, a good one.
1: You know, the 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 studies and in, in the experience people that it, that's not true. And to to mark someone with that and to apply this label that they feel all of a sudden now I can't be a part of society and that's got way. its own
0: snowball oh, right absolutely. on the person
1: so I mean so that would this book is a reaction to that
0: so let's without giving too I mean, much away the name of this book is the great pretender yes. um, and I don't want to get to the conclusion because I think even a because in reading the book the journey alone is worth, worth the price of admission or the price of the book. And I, and I do think that um, the conclusion doesn't change the entirety of the book. But share with us a little bit about what your investigative work over six years uh, revealed to you about the process. So you know, I
1: grapple with how to how deeply to go into this because it's a mystery, um, and uh, it's kind of thwarted expectations in a way. Because I, I, I come to this study as you can kind of tell the way I'm talking about it as a true fan and believer. Mm-hmm. And um, as I start to dive in, and I get, as I said, access to his diary and his unpublished book and his you know these like reams of correspondences throughout his life, questions start to emerge mm-hmm. um, about. Some of the conclusions, um, some of the aspects of the study that are key um, that might be questionable. So things start to kind of um, bubble up that start to um, intrigue me, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so I dive into
0: That's why it took so long to write, partially. And a lot of great characters. I mean, they're real people. Yes, um, yes. But I, I was fascinated uh, by Bill Underwood. Yes. Uh, so he was one of the pseudo—one of the early pseudo-patients, right? It's unclear in the timeline
1: of when, according to—now, this is a sh- indicator of the issues here. According to David's book, he was actually one of the later pseudo-patients, oh. but he is the first one I found. Oh, that's yes, right. Okay. exactly. So um, Bill was a graduate student at Stanford, so, so David was recruited to Stanford um, from Swarthmore. On the basis of this exciting kind of research that he was working on, he hadn't yet published, and um, he, he David Rosenhan taught a graduate level course in abnormal psychology in essence to kind of recruit people to go undercover like he did and one of those recruits was a man named bill underwood and he is i i adore him i mean you I, actually met him I in his did. life i right? did yeah i did on multiple occasions and they're lovely you know that's what had have been kind of this gift of this book i've made so many friends really through it you know David's circle was just a wonderful they're just a wonderful group his son is wonderful his best friend Florence is just they're my close friends and and Bill Underwood was such a joy to get to know and you know he was this kind of like he's from you know southern Texas town kind of very laconic, dry guy, but he would, you know, witty. Dro- witty, witty. And and he drove around on this motorcycle, this Yamaha motorcycle, and he had this big hair. And he was cool. Like he was really cool yeah. at the time. And his wife was gorgeous. And they were just this kind of great California couple, this California transplant couple. And he decided to to join in this study. And it was just wild to hear his recollections. He was in the hospital for a shorter period of time. I want to say he was in for about eight, seven, eight days. It was really
0: scary, though. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he he was drugged, and it's the big part of the study too. Was that twenty one hundred? Serious pharmaceuticals were given to these pseudo patients during the course of their hospitalizations, and Bill was was given Thorazine, which was very very common at that point. Um, one of the, it was the first antipsychotic to hit the market, and he it, he actually had a dissolving capsule. He couldn't cheek the pill, which is because it was burning, right? And
0: was burning, and he thought he could he spit it he could, out.
1: That's how David Rosenhan had trained. Bill Underwood to cheek it and spit it out in the bathroom. It's not really airtight advice, but um, it, yeah. when it when the capsule starts to dissolve and burn, because they know that patients do that, it became impossible, and he swallowed it. And at that point, he actually kind of passed out, and his that was when his wife first visited him. And even you know, fifty years later, his wife talking his wife when she was talking about visiting him in that hospital, and you know, she walked through these huge. Big doors, and and she actually ran into David Rosenhan, and it was a strange, surreal experience. And she walks into the cafeteria, and she sees her kind of amazing husband. He was a valedictorian. He was this, you know, strong, smart guy. He was just passed out on the table, and she was had previously been terrified about the thought of him being in the hospital. And
0: here was the her worst fears confirmed. Well, you know, let's let's close with um, this, Susanna because you mention it in Brain on Fire, and you mention it again here, and I think it's an important point for us to remember. You talk about the fact that you, as a result of the diagnosis, were physically healed. Yes. But talk about what can't be healed. Oh, wow. What a question. I feel,
1: ultimately... That this whole process, the writing of Brain on Fire, the talking about it, the researching The Great Pretender, you know, the writing it, now talking about it, has healed me in a way that, you know, the IVIG and the steroids and et cetera just couldn't. You know, I am the kind of person had this happen to me. And I didn't write a book, I'd never talk about it. And I would never have unearthed it and really understood it and, like, mastered it. I feel like I, in a way, even though you, you have no control, it's only, you know, it's a facade. But mm-hmm. I feel as if I, I have my, my arms around this thing that happened to me. And The Great Pretender is a kind of, I think, wrapping up of that it you know it still consumed me there were so many questions i didn't even tackle on brand on fire that i felt were unresolved and a lot of that was about psychiatry and my role in it and kind of the history there that kind of led to my the breakthrough with my illness
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: i think in a way now i think this book is like a closed loop
0: yeah. Cause at some point, I don't remember which book it was, you talked about feeling like your soul was altered. Yeah. Do you not feel that now having completed no. this book? My soul was altered, but I think in a in a good way, in a
1: positive way. Like mm. I didn't have these passions and interests and focus. You know, I I actually feel like I'm a better person having gone through what I went through. If you would have asked me this a couple years after my diagnosis, I would not have said that. I would have said no, yeah. Know. But I, I, I really do feel that that these the process of writing these things. I feel like it closed the loop there.
0: So we've been talking with Susanna Cahalan and uh, her book, uh, The Great Pretender. And Susanna, what I um, No Brain on Fire did, and I presume Great Pretender will do, is further the conversation, and open more people's eyes patients in the medical profession to what is possible i mean i do i do feel like you despite some of the sadness and stunning revelations that you do actually feel like there's a lot that's possible. So let's hope your book accelerates that happening. That's a huge compliment, and thank you for a beautiful interview. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. Justtherightbook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? it was just the right book. So visit just the right for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to just the right use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at just the right you are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody brought to you by LitHub Radio produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selick our editor is Gino Cordon at pleasantpodcast.com The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just The Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.